Good evening, everyone. Um, so good to see you the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Um, our call together um, comes from Mary Oliver, and it's entitled, Don't Hesitate. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give in to it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise and not very often kind, and much can never be redeemed. Still, life has some possibility left. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back, that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or power in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. So yeah, tonight we are continuing our conversation on joy. Last week we had a really interesting conversation on joy and happiness and what they mean in our lives. And Tim will lead us in the dialogue tonight. But first, Rhody and the kids are going to sing Lead Us in Our Community song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think we have one more week of this one. All right. I think. And then it's open. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, you guys remember? We are pilgrims on a journey. We are travelers on the road. We are Y'all are still talking about saints? Yes. And, and building hand labyrinths, I think. Awesome. Um, like I said, welcome. So good to see you all. Are there any announcements that we have? Yes, Dave. Did you say yes? No. Um, Kyle said um. Yes. So... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just making sure Zoe's actually going. Okay. Um, so, lead team had a meeting this week, and we were talking about December plans, and just wanted to give everybody a heads up. We are still finalizing things, but we want you to be looking out for details about a music night and a community potluck. We're going to be inviting uh, members of Calvary to join us, and it's going to be in the Calvary Sanctuary. I think at least that's the tentative plan that's set. Okay. So we're just nailing down the date and stuff like that, but be on the lookout for volunteer sign-ups to bring food. We're gonna be like organized this time. And um, also be thinking about whether or not you might be able to come early to help set up, because hopefully we're gonna have a huge crowd with Calvary folks as well. So we're gonna have tables in here and stuff like that. And if you are able and willing to stay behind and help clean up, um, in the past, our wonderful staff persons are um, often tasked with doing most of the cleanup, and so we want to make sure that doesn't happen this time. Um, I think that's it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kyle. Oh, so do you want the mic? Yeah. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I feel really bad taking that away from a baby. Um, 
Other announcements. Yes, so Advent is coming. Advent begins on December 3rd, which will be a really wonderful time. Um, and just to flag it, the Mayus Way doesn't always have a Christmas Eve service, but Christmas Eve and the fourth Sunday of Advent fall on the same Sunday. So we will be having church on the 24th of December. And yes. We and we will not be having church on New Year's Eve. But Thanks to Kyle. To we are also welcome to join Calvary on New Year's Eve. That's correct. Um, I don't have any other announcements. Songs of Hope is December 4th at 7 o'clock at Duke Memorial. There will not be childcare. They couldn't get it worked out. But Colin, who's organizing the event, said all kids are welcome. The rowdier, the better. I think he's wanting to spice up Duke Memorial a bit on that night. So 7 o'clock, 7, 8.30, it's free to attend. There will be a love offering donation taken. It's their last fundraiser of the year. It's for Durham Can. Um, and if you would prefer, or in addition to you beforehand, you can go see the city officials being sworn in. That's also happening on December 4th. Yes. Big uh, things that we're hoping to mobilize, and this is part of a, a major campaign that we're unleashing on jobs um, in Durham. Is um, we're trying to do house meetings that include enlisting sessions that include a thousand to two thousand people in the early winter, and we're hoping to train 125 people to do house meetings throughout Durham. It could be in your natural community, it could be you're joining up with somebody or really seeking people out. Um, I can, I'll tell some other time the background of this, but it's exciting stuff. So we would, if you're interested in being trained to lead a house meeting, um, you can talk to Tim Wooten or Sarah Berger or me, and, and we'll, we'll know that. We, we did not pledge a number of people, but it would be fantastic. Amaeus Way, uh, I don't know, is probably likely to do house meetings again in a half year to a year and a half or two years, and so it's, it's kind of part of the rhythm of our life here as well. So. Awesome. Okay. Any other announcements? Well, can I just say I'm ecstatic to have Tim Carlos with us tonight. Of all... I love all of our visiting artists, but Tim is always so thoughtful and intentional in what he brings, and so I'm really excited to have your voice in our conversation around joy and happiness and how you see that. So I'm ex quite excited for the absolution, too. But go ahead. Take it away. Uh, yeah, as ever, it's a, it's a pleasure to be, to be back here. Thank you for having me here once again. And for those of you who made it out to the, the music that we played at the Arts Centre in Carborough a couple of weeks ago, thank you for supporting that. And if you weren't there, you tr try and get along to the next one, because I think it's, um, I think it'd be really, really, if we can make these occasional music nights work, I think it could be really a really strengthening thing within the community and, and building and just putting a way on, on, a, on a different map. So, um, but yeah, thank you for, for those of you who were there and supported us. Um, so, yeah, before I, I launch into this first song, it's been brought to my attention gently by, uh, by Ben that I've... Uh, I've previously frustrated a number of people here by 
not explaining what songs are about. And, and I'm really sorry about that. Um, I personally, I don't, I don't really, this, it's the, I don't really enjoy it when, when songwriters start telling me what their song is about. Or, and having read memoirs and books about songwriters and musicians since uh, my early teens. Most songwriters, when they're asked about their songs, they, they generally they either don't want to talk about it or they say, I don't know what it's about. You know, and you normally break it down, you find that it's one, one phrase that, 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 that was the spark for the song, and then the rest of it's kind of like poetry. And, you know, and, and often people are writing in code as well, because you know, people are writing about pe the, the world around them. They don't necessarily want you know, the characters to know that they're, they're part of the, uh, the song, so, so that's my <laughs> explanation, my apology, I hope, right, look what you made me do, okay, so, but with that in mind, I, I'm going to give a, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, I'm going to have a, an attempt to explain what I think pa the patience of angels is about. So it's written by, by Boo Hewardeen, who's a, a jobbing songwriter in England. He's also a performing songwriter. He used to be in a band called The Bible in the 80s. They had a big hit, I think everywhere but in the US, with a song called Honey Be Good, which is a really infectious pop song. Um, and he's subsequently been doing his own thing and writing for other people, including for Eddie Reader, who he wrote this song with. Uh, this is on her first album. If, if you don't know Eddie Reader's name, she was, um, you might know Fairground Attraction. The band had a song called Perfect. It's got to be perfect. She was the singer in that band. Anyway, okay, so this is what I think this song's about. I think first verse is you've got some, a, a young lady. She's on the top deck of a London double-decker bus. And she sees somebody that she had an encounter with. Maybe a one-night stand. And, and she's got dreams as well, I, I think. She, and she's confused. And we then go into... Then we've got the, the patience of angels, which could allude to all manner of things. In, in the second... Is somebody feeding back? Oh, no, it's the... We can make that stop. OK. Um, verse 2, I, I realise this is really going on far too long now, but... Um, Verse 2, I think that she's had a child which, on her own, which may or may not be connected to the, the person she saw from the bus, and she's now trying to make it work, and, you know, she may be drinking too much, the morning's hurting her eyes. And then the, 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 the next verse, a door in a wall in a house, she's moved somewhere else, to, you know, she's done a ge geographical and she's trying to start again. And the door in a wall in a house in e English culture... I think that's like an old Victorian house that the base, the, the ground floor's been converted into what they call bed sits over there or studio flats, studio apartments. And that's what I think this song's about. <laughs> I'm guessing or quietly hoping that Ben never wants me to explain what a song's about again. <laughs>
from the top of the bus She thought she saw him wave Chiseled Tuesdays and forgetfulness And a little money saved Does she know? I don't know But from here I can tell That it would try The patience of angels It would try The patience of angels And you know Something's wrong When the morning Hurts your eyes And the baby Won't stop crying You'll be waiting Till you die Would I be Any good If I would Would I find That it would try The patience of any There's a door in a wall, in a house, in a street, in a town where no one knows her name. Does she know? I don't know. But from here. There's a door in a wall, in a house, in a street, in a town where no one knows the name. It would try the patience of angels. It would try. Thank you. So, before I move on to the next one, does anybody have any questions about that one? <laughs> okay. 
So this is uh, this next song, Life is Sweet. Uh, there's one, Maria McKee who wrote this song, and I know I'm, I can't remember which one, but there's a song of hers, isn't there, Mark, that's been in the, or was in the canon here for quite a while? Yeah, the last one. I can't think, what, what was it? Do you remember? There was uh, Dixie, Dixie Wind or something like that? There was something like that. Mm. Dixie Storms, that was, that was. Oh, I wasn't thinking of that one. Shelter is the song I was thinking of. The Lone Justice song. Yeah. So, if you don't know, Maria McKee was the singer in Lone Justice. She's, she hasn't been for a long time. But this is from an album called Life is Sweet, uh, which came out in the mid-90s. And, uh, yeah, I think it's evident what it's about. You know, it's just a song of, of encouragement, of, uh, of, of comfort. And, um, and the, the, the recording of it, the, you know, the... If you if you seek out the, the original recording, it's it's quite simplistic. It's just a guitar and a voice for most of it. And I think there's like a Hammond organ that comes in and a, and a snare drum at one point. Is that right? This one is for the boy who's not allowed to be 
part of the gang You don't need those losers I think you're beautiful You meet a girl You fall in love And it doesn't work out It won't be the first time And there's no cure for that Open your window, be alone Life is sweet, life is sweet, life is sweet Bittersweet, and the days keep rolling along Just rolling along The days keep rolling song I wrote um, a few, quite a few years ago now and I wrote it for a friend who was um, uh, was stuck kind of with, with a decision and, uh, and and again to go back to what I was talking about earlier really there's the only thing that's, that actually um, the, the, the line that's the only part of it that's, that's actually real the rest of it's kind of like, poetry around is you just sit there looking so solemn it's a wonderful life if you've forgotten it was just a, a pick-me-up and the rest of it is just um were just words that sort of fit fit the mood let's put them on like you down Make you move, but you 
just sit there looking so solemn It's a wonderful life, oh, have you forgotten? Just pick yourself up, I know you're not beaten Come on now, I won't let you down Took your time before you replied. I'd given you up. Your movements are blind. Now I'm lost in rhyme. So don't interrupt me. I'm waiting for you to make your move. Just sit there looking so solemn It's a wonderful life Oh, have you forgotten? Just pick yourself up I know you're not beaten Come on now, I won't let you down Just sit there looking so solemn It's a wonderful life, oh, have you forgotten? Just pick yourself up, I know you're not beaten Come on now, I won't let you down Now come on now Thank you. Thanks, Tim Carlos. Tim is a treasure of Mayas Way in so many ways. Uh, he has loved this community for since its inception, played, led, all sorts of things. And there are a few people who kind of understand the artistic side of liturgy better than Tim. And as you see, as we talk about joy tonight, you will, you will hear the... Um, the text of those songs play again and again in our conversation, I think. Uh, but let me give you a chance to greet each other, offer yourself the peace of Christ, uh, say hello, introduce yourself if you're around somebody that you don't know, and uh, just greet each other, and I will call us back together in just a moment. I was telling Ben, we have a, a Tim Carlos and REM on the same night. This seems a little unfair for me to work against, uh, and uh, you know, I will, I will not riff on shiny, happy people as Ben has asked but it's not going to happen. Um, but it's good to see everybody here tonight. 
So, like I said last week, when we kind of set this up, there wasn't like a big sermon template from Emmaus Way to draw upon on the Joy series. This might be our first Joy series ever. And uh, <laughs> so it's, it's fun to be in this space with you. Um, I think what Molly and I want to do with you guys on this is to foster a conversation on joy that's both honest to experiences that you have, some that are probably ones that you can think of now that are overwhelmingly joyful in your life, as well as deeply painful experiences. And we also want to have a theological conversation on this, is how do we think theologically in terms of what this world is about and where it goes as it relates to the joy and the pain in our lives, uh, and particularly the um, a sense of joy that seems to be presented to us often, particularly in the scriptures, as, as part of an aspiration and a reality of a person of faith. Um, but just to kind of set this up for a second, um, I think it's safe to say that at times joy is experientially problematic. Um, there's many spaces in the world that we live in where despair is probably more logical than joy or, or perhaps just simple frustration and anxiety. Um, and I did love that song on the patience of angels for that reason is, is just um, that those three verses as they were explained to us um, uh, walked us through life of change and anxiety, which seems to match a lot of our lives. We don't know what we're going to be doing in five years. We don't know with what we're struggling with, what is, whether it's going to be painful in five years. We don't know what unforeseen joys are coming in our life. I saw this statistic uh, is, uh, last week that 42% of current collegians in America suffer from some level of anxiety. Uh, now that's 42% in the most privileged and kind of pre-affluent slice of American life. So we are, in many ways, a very anxious culture. Um, and that can make joy difficult. And when we experience joy, we can secretly wonder whether we've stolen it or simply escaped the momentary notice, notice of some capricious gods who are ready and at the wait with pronouncements of cancer or unemployment, romantic despair, or some other brew of damnable shit that's just coming our way, right? So, so even when we're in joy, we, we, we know that we're not in control of it. And so joy becomes challenging, right? It, it, we have experiences that are always um, battling against it. And I, I think the piece that Molly read as well is that Joy is sometimes challenged by the fact that when we are profoundly experiencing joy, um, we, we sometimes feel like we are cheating our relationships because we always can find someone in our network who's struggling with something. So experientially, this is challenging. I think that theological joy gets no easier. Uh, the grand and beautiful prophetic announcements of the scriptures at times seem really distant. I had a wonderful conversation with a friend today, a person who'd been a part of this community for a long time before moving. And the gist of his question uh, is, so 
is it coming? Is it, is it what we prayed for and wanted and hoped for as people who call themselves uh, uh, faithful, as people who are hoping in God's expectations? Have we put our chips behind the right horse? What are we looking at? Uh, and in many ways, we're still looking at times for the vision of Jesus to become real in our world. Or, for that matter, the vision of MLK. Or, given the news of this week, the feminist visions of Malala or Bell Hooks. Or, going all the way back to Ruth and Naomi. We are aware that we live in a world that has a long way to go. A long way for it to look like that kingdom of God. Now, we've got some incredible theological resources. Texts like the mustard seed and things like that that do remind us that we were never promised God's kingdom and fruition at the beginning. Uh, but our resident prophet Brian reminded us last week that, uh, that sometimes we have erroneously confused luck with God's blessing. And, and, and there's a lot of times that God's, the terms of God's blessings are thrown around very cavalierly uh, when some of us might look and say, nah, that's the product of privilege or the product of luck or the product of a powerful network. Um, but theological pronouncements about joy are difficult. And you make them in one cultural context and you have to ask the hard question, could I land in another cultural context and would that be meaningful? Last week we saw in the Happy Movie um, or the documentary some pretty profound differences in terms of, uh, of joy, frustration. If you ever watch that all the way through, the comparisons between Japan and Okinawa are unbelievable, or Denmark and the US, or, um, or uh, Southern Sahara Africa with portions of uh, Central America. They are profoundly different places with different definitions. And all I'm saying by that is there's often not a one-size-fits-all theological pronouncement that we can make based on whatever sources we use for our theology and just put it on top of the world. You guys, by the way, thanks a lot for last week, all the hard questions you asked. Uh, I mean, I say that very facetiously because it was fantastic. You guys asked incredible questions about this whole idea of joy and what do we need? What are we looking for? Jim was talking about parenting. Some of us were talking about life circumstances. People were asking questions theologically. Um, joy is a challenging subject to talk about. But this, I think this is clear, is that we're asked to be a joyful people, to seek and to find joy and to live in joy. And deep down, despite any evidence that would challenge this, we sense that this is the right path. When I read spiritual writers that I love and adore, the Henry Nowens and the Dallas Willards and all sorts of people through the years, they have been consistent, powerful writers writing about their pain, their wounds, the activism that they tried to live out that didn't always come into fruition, but they always wrote from a context of striving to live in joy. And certainly as a community, we never want to take joyfulness and encode it as trite, right? We never want to say to someone who's experiencing the presence of God in their life, the presence of God's goodness and friendship and relationship and hope and work as something that is trite or you're missing something that you should be looking at. So we need to 
to, to live in, in joy and seek joy and to find joy. And it is hard. Uh, I, I made the mistake of probably watching one more day of news this week than I had my limit for. And I, I, was, I just sit there and typed out, in a Trumpian dystopia of fear, patriarchy, racial anger, hate, vast inequities. It's not even a sentence. Alternative facts and the gaslighting of the whole world. There's no verb. <laughs> and, and then some question marks. Just, I just started hitting my question mark. Like, I mean, seriously, I mean, where do you, it, it just, where? <laughs> no verbs, right? <laughs> so let's talk about joy, despite its challenges. Um, Molly turned me on to a piece from one of my favorite theologians, somebody that I've quoted more times than you care to hear in, uh, in Emmaus Way, Willie Jennings, formerly of Duke and now of Yale. And he wrote a, a piece called Spaces of Joy. And, um, and, and his, if you, one thing to know about Willie is that he is a scholar of not just kind of critical theology, meaning looking at what's broken and wrong in our world, but he looks at it very clearly from the lens of the black church. As a black scholar, as a black theologian, he's not saying to us that the black church is perfect. Um, it's not my place to critique it, but I, I'm sure he would. But one of the things that's a significant part of his theology is the church of oppressed, subordinated people see the world in a different place. They see it in a different way. They experience things. And so in being asked to write about joy, he naturally drew to that lens, which was his lens growing up as a, a black church kid, as a black church pastor, and now as a black church theologian. So here's his starting out on this. I'll quote him a few times. Um, joy for the African diaspora Christian and many others exist under the condition Conditions of oppression, opposition, and domination. And I'm interested in how joy is performed under these actual conditions. How do oppressed peoples access joy? What does joy entail within the realities of domination, cultural imperialism, and racial animus? And in fact, I could hear Willie saying this. Tim, your intro, I, I liked your cute no-verb line about Trump. Uh, but people of color are used to this. <laughs> this is not something new to us. For you and your position, you are, you're not used to this kind of overt racism spoken in a way that embarrasses you or hurts you uh, because it's not directed at you. Uh, but for people to whom it has been directed, we're not talking about a profound change. And so what he's saying in this piece is let's consider joy from the vantage point of African diaspora Christians. And one of the things that he says is there's a, there's a types of resistant joy that we need to know about. Uh, joy that exists in resistance to oppression, even oppressions that can't be defeated. A book that Molly turned me on to that has a beautiful phrase from that kind of biblical culture, making a way out of no way. I mean, how... Making, making a way when there seems to be absolutely no way. And, and Willie's making the point that there is joy in that. 
And a first example that he gives is this idea of, um, of segregated joy, that joy exists in fragmentation, division, and segregation. In other words, when communities of people who might be oppressed gather together, there are hidden transcripts in their, their songs, their actions, their behaviors, uh, where their identity is fostered in a sense of resistance to their oppression and a form of defiant joy. Um, an example that he gives on this, which I think is interesting, he says, there, are in specific, there is specific places where a people can repeat their joy and know themselves in the repetition. For many African diaspora Christians, that place would be the church. It could also be a club, a bar, a gym, a barber or beauty shop, someone's home, or a street corner. And in fact, the prayer that we used last week from Maya Angelou was, was in many ways this exalting joy of as she wrote about two black girls going out on the town, going to a club with their men, and everybody wishing that they were them, right? That's a, that's a form of segregated, meaning oriented in a separate identity from others, and a defiant joy based on, in that poem, how black women's bodies are often judged in our culture. In this piece, he also writes about another type of resistant joy, and that is spatial joy, or joy in distinct Spaces. Um, the way that word, by the way, is used a lot, a lot of times I, I see it read this way. There's others who know more about this than me. But people talk about locations, right? The location that we're at now is an address on Elizabeth Wright and Trinity. We're, we're in a geographic location. But a space is more than a geographic location, often in that language. It's a location where certain things happen, where behaviors, activities, relationships, encounters happen. And so he's talking about space in, in that way. And he says, essentially, one can be resistant to the world they're in and be joyful in various psychic, emotional, and spiritual spaces. Um, last week, SK gave us a really good illustration of that. You made reference to uh, Dave and Ellen's party, right? As, as a psychic space of joy, right? No matter what was going on out there, there were lots of fun people dancing, uh, drinking, eating great Mediterranean food. Uh, there was, it was not a space with there was inhibition or comparison or, or ostracism. And, and it was a beautiful multi-generational space where little kids were dancing and their parents were dancing and their grandparents were dancing. And it was, it was a space of joy. And, and that's what, what Willie's talking about, that even in resistance, and SK, I think you used it exactly that way, that regardless of what might wound me right now, nothing would take away that space as something that was profoundly joyful to you. Now, for Willie, who loves music, and I thought about this is a great night to have Tim here and others, one of the things that he writes a lot about is the idea of sonic space. Here's what he says. This sonic space, musical, music itself, spaces where music is loved, uh, becomes a womb for joy where it will live and breathe and take flight through sound. 
weaving together bodies and places and joint habituation, the joy of the body, the joy of a place becoming one. Learning how to access this space of joy became a spiritual discipline shared by Christian and non-Christian alike. However, Afro-Christianity has historically been a central facilitator of this spiritual discipline as displaced African peoples taught themselves and their children what it meant to inhabit the sonic space of joy. This joy work is certainly communal work, back to Tim's comment last week, because this psychic space is a shared space. One of the things I love about, he uses the example here of, and we did some songs that did this tonight, the idea of the blues. He said, you know, the blues is such a, an incredible conundrum of an art form because it sings about painful experiences in a joyful, powerful milieu. And those of you, I don't know if, um, if Brett or others have heard Willie lecture, but if, if you hear him lecture, uh, here's this black northeastern intellectual in a southern white elite school making a point about race that he knows is being contradicted all around him above the building around the building this notion that there's as he puts it i've quoted this so many times that there is some social disease in the imagination of the white church so there he is making this point and i've never seen somebody make this point to a group of white people so gently so comfortably so honestly and so joyfully and one of the things that willie is prone to do in a lecture on that point is to break into song. He lets sonic space often dictate the words that he's offering. And so if you're not hearing some Coltrane or something in one of Willie's lectures, he's probably got a cold or he's just not feeling good that day. But that's an example to him of, of a space. Um, and, and in some ways, um, Emmaus Way for some of you guys might be that kind of space for you, a safe space of, of, of resistance. Uh, you may have come tonight to steal yourself to handle your Thanksgiving dinner uh, in a few days with family members somewhere else, right? Um, that's, that's, all these are ways that people are joyful in oppression. Willie goes on, he says, the racial world, and he's talking about the oppressed make a point that we don't like to hear, but it's normal for them, is that joy exists spatially near death. This joy work, I'm quoting, always exists near to the edge of nihilism, death, and nothingness. Pressing against the absurdities of a racial world, hoping to use its energies against it to launch bodies back into life, sustaining and life-enhancing ways of living. Joy here works at the edge of death, resisting death's desire to take more and more of life. So a question that we might ask, and these are two significant ways to think of joy in the world, is resistant, defiant joy, right? In spaces, albeit sonic spaces, or, uh, or in segregated spaces. But a, a very fair question is, is there is there joy that goes beyond segregated space? And this might be the most powerful narration of the New Testament at times on joy. Uh, Jesus seems to present joy to us as in a gathering 
type of space. Um, I'll quote him again. Jesus presents a joy that gathers. The gospel narratives do not present a joy with Jesus that is obvious, right? You can't just read the New Testament and go, oh, that was joyful. Jesus loved that encounter. They were kind of on him, pressing against him, taunting him. But he seemed to be so at peace with this stuff. That really isn't the New Testament reading. But instead, quoting again, it seems to be joy that is revealed in the intimate spaces of need and desire where the longings of those who want to be healed and delivered from oppression meet the longing of Jesus for the full realization of the reign of God. That desire that has a woman who bleeds to reach out and touch the hem of his cloak and the delight of Jesus in receiving that touch to the point that he stops it all to comment on that forbidden touch. Willie would go on to say, this is another lens where the black church teaches us something. Segregated joy was thrust upon the African Christian through centuries of inflicted terrorism and white supremacy. Teaching those and other Christians that real joy cannot be found at the site of interracial existence. There was, however, those who pressed against this pedagogy, opting for spaces of shared desire and hope that would yield the stolen pleasure of a joy that suggested a different way, a different life. Sonic space was often host to such outbreaks of illicit joy as people shared in music and dance, turning themselves, even if only for a moment, into conduits of exchange that would unleash a power to create the cultural Baroque and open new avenues of thoughts and dream for a better life together. This kind of joy is at odds with the reigning realities of segregated joy, and it requires a new kind of resistance that should also be our work. We should resist modes of life that align joy with the structuring energies of class, gender, and racial division. Rejoicing in the Lord should be, I love this phrase, a fugitive act that breaks open not only our despair, but the despair of others by breaking down the walls that exist even in our joy. So Ben's fundraiser this year for the Religious Coalition was a hour and 15 minutes of fugitive joy, right? In spaces talking about people who had been murdered, restored of justice, brokenness, and there were people, person after person, describing joy. The man who stood around us who had been, how long had he been incarcerated? Most of the, most of his adult life, in one yeah. And, and here's this man in his 50s, maybe? 60s? 50s. Like 50s. Standing in front of us, exuding joy. And his receiving love, giving love back, and the love of the people around him was a profoundly fugitive act. So I think what Willie is saying to us is besides the natural segregations that we have, when we're with our people, 
talking about what makes us joyful or talking about what hurts us. And besides the beautiful sonic spaces that may ask us to dance, ask us to sing, ask us to live in exultation, even if they're just moments, our work is that fugitive work of creating joy that comes from desire and it's a desire that crosses boundaries. This is the notion of gathering joy, gathering in the body of Jesus' life and work, a fusion of active desire that transcends our segregations. And if Emmaus Way functions as a segregated space sometimes, the safe space that you can talk about an economy of life, a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of being theologically that isn't safely received at all the times. There's another part of our community, and that's the open table part of our community that demands that we live into this fugitive states. It's what we mean when we talk about ourselves being a borderlands community or a border crossing community where we're asking ourselves to have desires for a world that is greater than the one we live in and more powerful than maybe even our own imaginations. So what does that say to us about joy? In a simple like little mind bubble on this, joy in the present in our life right now is a commitment it's a practice. It's a perpetual action of desire and invitation. Desiring something better. Inviting people into something better. And it's certainly an act of restful play. There is something deeply seditious in playful people and an overly serious, overly racialized, overly broken, overly colonial world. That's part of our work together. That's kind of why we do what we do together. Here's what I want to do tonight, just briefly. Let's watch this happen in a biblical text. I'm just going to read a really common text. Uh, this is the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Remember the definition of space. Not just a geographical location, but a place where things happen. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to just stop and say, notice how the space is changing. This is starting around verse 3. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So where are we now? We're in a space of... And racial hate and a different theological story, right? We're in that nasty space of why are you on this side of the town? That's exactly not a good neighborhood, as the real estate broker might say. So they came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out of his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. So now we're in a space of profound geographical significance and also theological confusion. Because Jacob is the father of the Samaritans and the Jews, right? It's like many of us. I haven't had this experience, but I'm sure it's true. If I search my genealogy, I'm sure I find somebody who held slaves, fought in the Civil War, 
did something dastardly and it challenges my whitewashed notion of myself. So a Samaritan woman comes up to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share in common with Samaritans. What kind of space did it just become? With her words. Gendered. It became a very gendered and a very patriarchal space, right? She pointed out the patriarchy. There was religious enmity here. There was resistance in her words, right? We get the, the sense of she rejects the reality that has been imposed upon her, and there's possible fear. What would this man do? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus turns it into a prophetic space, a prophetic present salvation laden space. There's something here for you. And the woman says to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks that drank from it? Let me reread that. Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? This is a space now of religious dispute and defiance. Jew man, what have you brought here? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Now Jesus is turning the prophetic space, not just to the present, but an eschatological space, looking to the deep future on this. And the woman said to him, what tone should we choose? Sir, yeah, yeah. Give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. There's a lot of ways you could read that sentence. But there is potentially jest, testing, a hint of desperation, maybe a hint of conversion. I mean, what do you think? What is, how would you read? Somebody read that sentence their way. Verse 15. Read it in your tone, your interpretive tone. I mean, there's the Jesus movie way. All right. oh, 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 Lord. Brian, I called him a prophet and he took us to the Jesus movie. Read it. Can you read it the Jesus movie way? Well, just, you know, any Jesus movie. Sir, give me this water. So that I You did that so well. Does somebody else have a reading? Yeah, I have, I have a reading. It's the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. At which point Jesus responds, call your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. 
Yeah, give me. Like, this water has never been intended for women like me. Or it's seductive. Yeah. Or, or yeah, I'm available. And Jesus turns it into confrontational space, doesn't he? Call your husband and come back. And the woman answers to him, I have no husband. Perhaps a bitter, partial confession. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, Jesus' power of prophecy has moved from the present of salvation to eschatology to the personal in the moment. And the woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where our people must worship is Jerusalem. Now, I read that as a space changing toward capitulation and yearning. Where would be a space for me? The doctrine of the day and you who hold power and the keys of the temple have said that worship doesn't happen on our mountain, which is the space where my people are, but in the space that's forbidden to me. Oh, but could there be a space for me? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now we have revelation and invitation. This is for you. This has become what was once defiant space, an angry space, and religiously, theologically hate-filled space to a space of invitation. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. There's an escalation of desire in her now. Right? That she's been told that she's invited into something that was forbidden of her and she desires it. And Jesus responds in kind, I am he. The one who is speaking to you is the Messiah. A culmination of revelation and invitation. If you read the other gospels, something Jesus never says to anyone, he says to her and invites her to enjoy it. Just then the disciples come and What's the appropriate tone for this part? In any story that's happening in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and the disciples come, what's the right noise? Womp, womp, womp. Womp, the clowns who don't get discipleship. What shall we call them? The disciples. So the disciples came, and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said it. These were Southerners. What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Instead, we'll just sit with silent astonishment and rebuke. A threat. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. And she said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah. Can he? They left the city 
and we're on their way to him. And so now we see a conversion space opening up, right? And not a space that demanded a geographical location, this mountain or Jerusalem, but something where everybody's being converted. And at the end, this is at 39, many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is truly the Savior of the world. So this space that has journeyed from one place now lands into the joy of a salvation space, a joining space, a space of transgression where boundaries and racial theological histories and racial theological hates that remain do not function in power in this space. It is indeed a boundary crossing. It's something new. I think that's what Willie is talking about, is that no matter what we face, when we think of joy as a practice in specific spaces, at times it will be practices of resistance, but other times it will be practices of profound conversion. And notice the reciprocity of conversion that happens in this story. The space is created not just by Jesus, right? It's created by the woman's contribution to the words of Jesus. So here are my questions for you this week, ones that I would love for you to ponder, ones that I would have asked you had I not taken up so much time. <laughs> what are your spaces of joy? What are the places, be it defiant places, segregated places, um, sonic spaces, or conversion spaces, what are the spaces that give you joy? Some of you describe this in kitchens and cooking and serving and helping and enjoying and playing and dancing and profaning and taunting and there's lots of ways to act out this space but what are they for you and what are your practices of joy making albeit resistant segregated or other types of joy if joy is a practice in the present what are your practices that turn these spaces into joy for you. And then for us as a community, how can we be a gathering space of joy construction? Gathering in the spirit of the invitations of the text we've read today, where a man and a woman and resistant people around and a hated community somehow come together and find a space of joy that was not a deferred act of joy, but was profound joy in that moment with profound implications for the future. What are your spaces of joy? What are your practices of joy making? And how can we continue to strive to be that space? Tim, you want to lead us in confession and absolution? Okay, so um, again, thank you very much for having me here this evening. It's always a pleasure to be here. So two songs to, to close the uh, today today's uh, 
feelings out. And so the first song's um, written by a guy called Paul Buchanan, who's um, the singer and songwriter in a band called the Blue Nile from Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, Blue, Blue Nile and Paul Buchanan couldn't be described as prolific. They've done the Blue Nile. I think have done four albums in the last 35 years, and he's done one solo album during that time. Um, but it's, he makes very beautiful, um, thoughtful music. Uh, in particular, his last album, uh, or his only solo album, is called Midair. So these very beautiful, stark pieces, which are just him playing piano and speaking or singing over the top. This is from the, their, uh, their third album, Piece of Last, and it's, yeah, he's, uh, again, I don't know specifically what he's writing about, but my, my sense is that after a few years in the, in the fast lane of, of rock and roll, he kind of, um, he's gone back to his roots and gone back to um, a simpler life. Uh, and he's quite happy with it, with, you know, the line that you've got at the end where he's saying, I wanted more, but I live with less. And I, I don't see that as, as him feeling that he's going without rather than that he realises that, you know, he'd already got what he was looking for, so to speak. Anyway, this is called Happiness. It's only love, it's only love, 
Thank you. Again, thanks for having me here. I'm going to finish now with a song from Van Morrison. For, uh, Into the Mystic, which um, is from the album Moon Dance, uh, from the early part of um, Van Morrison's career. When uh, he uh, spent a lot of time reading, talking about, and singing about, at different times, about uh, sort of mystic poets like W. Uh, William Butler Yeats, William Blake, John Donne, a lot of romantic and yeah, mystical poetry. And, and I, th I think, um, I think it's probably a mistake to try and figure out exactly what Van Morrison was writing about at, at any point. Uh, but I take the mystic as being um, into a state of bliss, uh, whether it's an imagined place or uh, or a realised place. I don't know. But that's that's my take on it. Anyway, um, thanks again. Let your soul and spirit fly 
When that foghorn blows I wanna hear it Don't wanna have to fear it And I wanna rock your gypsy soul Just like way back in the days of old And magnificently We'll float into the mystic table invitation is short tonight. Come to a table, come to a space that is not made of crumbs, but is made of abundance. Even when we aren't totally sure what to do with joy or where it may find us, we know that it will find us here. In the breaking of bread and the pouring of wine or juice or giving of gluten-free cracker. In relationship and being able to fully be oneself. So come to a table not of crumbs, but of deep, deep joy. 
as we serve one another the love and peace of God. <laughs>